Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Let the same mind be in you that was in Jesus Christ, who, through he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but in pitied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Mark 11, 1 through 11. When they were approaching Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been written, ridden. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Just say this, The Lord needs it, and will send it back here immediately. They went away and found a colt tied near a door, outside in the street. As they were untying it, some of the bystanders said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? They told them what Jesus had said, and they allowed them to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut in the fields. Then those who went ahead and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Then he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks Thanks be to God. During the season of Lent, we have been unpacking this concept of social holiness, which arises from a statement that uh, the founder of modern-day United Methodism made in the late 1700s. He, uh, John Wesley, was writing in criticism to uh, the mystic movement that was going on, not in complete criticism, but just toward one particular facet this notion of personal piety, that one's faith journey is for that one person and that one person alone. And so in speaking toward the mystic faith, uh, the mystic practice at least, Wesley offers a criticism saying directly opposite to this being this practice of personal piety is the gospel of Christ emphasis on Christ. Solitary religion is not to be found there. Holy solitaries, quotes, is a phrase no more consistent with the gospel than holy adulterers. You can tell he feels pretty passionately about this. The gospel of Christ knows of no religion but social, no holiness but social holiness. 
faith, working by love, is the length and breadth and depth and height of Christian perfection. This commandment we have from Christ, that he who love God love his brother also, and that we manifest our love by doing good unto all men, especially to them that are of the household of faith. And in truth, whosoever loveth his brother not in word only, but as Christ loved him, cannot but be zealous of good works. He feels in his soul a burning, restless desire of spending and being spent for them. My father, will he say, worketh hitherto and I work, and at all possible opportunities he is, like his master, going about doing good. And so taking this excerpt from Wesley's uh, journal entries on uh, the mystic faith and personal piety, we see this necessity for social holiness, that holiness be something more than just for me, something more than just about me, that my journey of faith, my endeavors reaching for the divine cannot be limited by me. In other words, social holiness is about making room for one another. Oh, yes, making room for one another. It is amazing how much space we as people can end up taking up. And I don't mean just like physically, but socially uh, in a community. We end up taking up a lot of space whenever it's just us, whenever we're just focused on ourselves. Uh, For example, we we end up limiting how much another person can matter to a community. We end up limiting how much a life means to the rest of the people. We end up designing political policies, if you will, that say some people are less than others. We are able to take up a lot of space as people. But social holiness calls us to acknowledge that we, as individual people, as finite people, are only so great as our God and the people whom our God has called us to love. And if we do not love those people the way that we have been called, what love do we really have for ourselves? In the greatest commandment, whenever the, uh, whenever the religious leaders of the day challenge Jesus and say, which of these 600 and whatever some odd commandments are the greatest, Jesus says, you know them. Don't be silly. Love your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. It is an equivalent exchange. The great devastators of this holiness that Wesley talks about here are pride and selfishness. Pride and selfishness. This this, this notion that we tend to get so absorbed in who we are and what it means for me to be me that we neglect what it means for my neighbor to be my neighbor, what it means for you to be you, what it means for us to be us. And so this social holiness, this the gospel of Christ, calls us to humility. We start our uh, scripture path this morning with Philippians chapter 2. And verses 5 through 11, uh, through 11 are considered by many scholars to be one of the first hymns that ever came out of the church. That this passage here, Philippians 2, uh, 
was something that Paul, in his writing to the church in Philippi, co-opted because it was something that became familiar in the early church during this time, a hymn of praise to the character of Christ. And in it, there's this acknowledgement, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. This is also very similar to how Paul starts his entire letter to the church in Philippi. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. How amazing that that's how our God chooses to interact with humanity, by being emptied to the point of human likeness. And this notion here, to be emptied, to take on the form of a slave, and this, uh, this word here in the Greek be more adequately uh, translated as a bond servant, someone who is voluntarily in servitude in order to make their living to exist in the world. So this isn't just like slavery, like Jesus has said, you now belong to me and I will do with you what I please kind of slavery. This is the kind of, sla the kind of slavery that says, I am a servant. It is my identity. It is who I choose to be. To take on that form, to be like that as Christ did, is an act of humility. And Paul here calls us, let that same mind be in us. That same way of thinking about the world. Can you imagine for a moment if, if in your everyday endeavors you had the mindset of each person I come across, I am a bond servant to them, willing and eager to be there for them in whatever they need. I imagine that might be kind of an exhausting life, honestly. But just consider for a moment, on your way, whenever you leave the church and you come across that one person who's texting at the red light and doesn't go whenever it turns green, and so you're like, why is this human being even here in the same area as me? Consider for a moment what it might be to be a servant to that person. Now, sure, yeah, eventually that becomes a, a hazard, and so you might want to encourage them to move along. But for a moment, rather than thinking about the person as an obstacle, to consider that person as a blessing. Each moment in our life. Barbara Brown Taylor is uh, a priest in the Episcopal Church, and she's just a phenomenal human being, has some really uh, exquisite writings and reflections, and, and just, yeah, overall just a fantastic person. And she, in one of her uh, books, writes about a story uh, in which she is at the grocery store and checking out, and, you know, similar to like Publix down here, there are baggers and putting her items in the bag. And this person who is bagging her groceries, she says he's this young teenager and is just kind of chatting with her and she's watching him put her tomatoes and portobello mushrooms underneath some cans. Oh, and you know that's the wrong way to bag. And in that moment she says, 
She, talk, she reflects on how she looked upon this person and saw for just a moment that person as an obstacle to her journey, an obstacle to her getting her way, an obstacle to her living her life as she so chooses. And she reflects later uh, in, in her book about, how, about what it might look like to consider that person, that human being, as more than an obstacle. This is the foundation of social holiness, to look upon another human being and see the inherent godly worth in each and every person, the imago Dei, the image of God in that very human being, and to say that you are worthy. And that takes an amount of humility. That takes an amount of stepping out of our pride. That takes an amount of us being willing to see that person as entirely human. To acknowledge that that person, just as they are, is loved by the same God who loves us. And that person, just as they are, we too are called to love. Humility is imperative to the Christian life. And it is exemplified in our Savior. Consider for a moment the God of the universe chose humility over power when coming before us. Consider the context for a moment in which that notion was presented we have Greco-Roman society and the many gods that exist within this culture, and these gods are all about that power and that might. These gods are the gods who, who smite people because they were bored. These gods are the ones, you know, that have all of these crazy, really vicious stories going on about them, and, and suddenly it's being introduced into this very same community, the notion of a god who chooses humility over power. And so we get to our second scripture lesson today, coming from Mark chapter 11. And those of you who've been in Bible study with me know that Mark is my second least favorite gospel, um, just because he's just, he just misses out on so many details. But this one he does all right with. Uh, and, and Mark, as, as he's presenting this account, as he's reflecting on what's important here, chooses to include this story in his account. Mark is one who's very picky about what's included in his account of Jesus. Very picky. There are so, so, much more, so many more details in Matthew and Luke that are available to us that Mark just neglects or maybe didn't have access to, whatever. But this account here, Mark found as significant and includes it because something interesting happens here. This is the triumphal entry, and Jesus prepares to enter the holy city in a very fascinating way. First off, he sends his two disciples into the city to go and find a colt, a donkey that has, has never been ridden before. How on earth they end up just coming across that said donkey is by, obviously, divine wisdom, I suppose. Um, and they come across this colt and gather it and bring it back to Jesus for Jesus to enter into the city on. Now, there are critics on both sides of the aisle here who look at this passage and say either that 
that this was an act of humility because kings don't ride on donkeys, they ride on horses. There might be some amount of truth to that. I'm not a, uh, a perfect scholar of Greco-Roman society during this time. There's also those who say, no, a donkey was okay for a king to ride. The horse, however, was one for military purposes. You don't ride a donkey into war. It's poor, a poor, poor military strategy right there. So even choosing the donkey here at this moment tells us something, that Jesus is coming not with the intent of war. Whether or not a king is to ride in on a donkey, Jesus does not come with the intent of war. And so this is a very interesting entry into Jerusalem because the people of the day, and not everybody, everybody has always had their own notion of who the Messiah is supposed to be. Everyone has always had their own concept of, of who this anointed one is and what that anointed one is supposed to do. But there is still this glimmer of hope that the Messiah is going to be the one who restores the kingdom of Israel to its former glory, that glory of the time of King David. And during this time of Jesus, Rome occupies Israel. There really isn't the kingdom of Israel right now. And there's very little hope for there to ever be one again. And so there is this glimmer of hope that perhaps, perhaps this is that Messiah, the one who is going to actually restore us. And so they lift up this anthem that calls out Hosanna in the highest, which is a beautiful anthem. You can actually find it in the Psalms, Psalm 118 uh, is where this comes from. And this anthem, uh, that word Hosanna is, is the expression, save us, we beseech you, O Lord, save us. Um, not just chosen frivolously during this time. It was a pretty common anthem for the uh, major festivals that happened in Jewish culture. So it was one that was pretty well known, but it's still implying something that is very powerful here. And yet Jesus comes in humbly on a donkey, satisfying one of the Old Testament prophecies from Zechariah chapter 9, find this in verse 9, which reads, Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem. Oh, isn't that what they are doing as Jesus comes in? Hosanna in the highest heaven. They are shouting, rejoicing greatly. Lo, your king comes to you, triumphant. Yes, this is the triumphal entry. And victorious is he. Oh, there is a little bit of expectation there. Humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's Zechariah 9, 9, letting us know that there is something for us to be paying attention to here. The humility of the king entering into this space. And even Zechariah is anticipating this triumphal, victorious entry. And the people who are waving their palm branches, who are laying their cloaks on the road, who are welcoming the Messiah, into the city, have this expectation as well. And yet, Jesus has different plans. Listen to how this triumphal entry goes. Verse 11, Mark chapter 11, verse 11. Then 
he entered Jerusalem, Jesus, he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The end. That is the triumphal entry when, when Jesus rides in victorious and everybody's shouting, Hosanna, loud Hosanna, and he enters into the temple. Ah, oh, yes, very nice stonework. Very good. Lovely. I don't know what, they probably had some kind of conversation. Jesus might have talked to some people in the temple. But they walk in, he looks around, and after he'd seen everything, it's getting late, guys, let's head back home. And they go back to Bethany, which was a very common uh, place for them. This is where... Uh, uh, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus live. This is where uh, uh, Peter's mother lived, a pretty common place for them to journey back to. And they go back to Bethany, and they call it a night. And that's the triumphal entry. There isn't a whole lot of victory at the end of that. Unless we are willing to look at the bigger picture that God is working on here. During the Lenten season, we have been on a journey toward the resurrected Christ. And we, in this triumphal entry, are anticipating that. During Lent, we've been talking about this all along, Lent is meant to be a time of preparation, a time of anticipation, a time of formation for those who wish to become part of the greater life of the church. To go through is a time of acknowledging that what people are signing up for in the church is much bigger than themselves. Lent starting out as a season was meant to be a time of that formation. Leading up to Resurrection Sunday, whenever people would be baptized into the life of the church, they would go through this time of 40 days of preparation, readying themselves to be a part of the mission of the church. Not just the whole coming in the doors and sitting in the pew part, and every so often there's uh, bread and wine, and every so often uh, you know, there's water involved and stuff like that. It's, it's the mission of the church that they are getting prepared for. And it's a mission that reminds us it's not all about me. And so, as we too walk through this season of Lent, we take a moment to acknowledge this holiness for which we are being prepared, this holiness that is social in nature, and we do so through acts of humility, acts of humility through the Lenten season. Humility says my journey of faith is about more than me. And as Paul has encouraged us, we are to take the same mind which is in Christ who recognized that his journey was about more than him. We've talked before about uh, Jesus uh, last week as Jesus says the time has come. This is from John. He says the, the hour has come for my Father to be glorified. And what should I say? Take this cup from me? No, I have come here for this hour. Jesus acknowledges that it's not just about him. He acknowledges what is to come is great suffering for him, but also acknowledges that there is a bigger picture here and it takes an act of humility to be able to step into God's bigger picture. And so the season of Lent reminds us about our finite nature. We begin with Ash Wednesday, from dust you came and to dust you shall return. And it reminds us of our communal nature as we gather together through the season of Lent as a community of faith, acknowledging that we get through this together. 
And it reminds us of the nature of our infinite God, the God whose great love and grace extended out into humanity in a moment of humble sacrifice. We are reminded as Jesus enters Jerusalem that God has a bigger picture for, for humanity, one that includes each of us, not just a few. Because as Jesus enters Jerusalem and goes to the temple, not to the head of state, but to the temple, and then after a few moments returns back home, that there is something more yet to come. And so, as we go through this Holy Week, as we approach Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday coming in just a, a one week from today, I want to implore each and every one of us to let the same mind be in us that was in Christ Jesus, a mind of humility. I'm reminded here, uh, just a moment, of my favorite prophet, Micah, you, you got to have that as my favorite because, yeah, it works out in my favor. Who reminds us in uh, chapter 6, verse 8, what is good and what the Lord requires of us, which is to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly, yes, to walk humbly with our God. Humility has been part of the plan all along. And the greatest devastator of this holiness to which we are moving toward is our pride and our selfishness. So take the bigger picture of God's work of salvation with you this day to remember that this journey to and beyond the cross is about all of us. It is social in nature. It is communal in nature. Let us be transformed in heart and mind to welcome all people on this journey with us. Friends, we are journeying to the resurrection, to the very life which God has to offer us. Let us do so humbly, the same mind that is in us as was in Christ. And let us pray together.